Hello everyone, welcome once again to Reason for Hope. Glad that you have joined us again or stumbled upon our broadcast here. Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast. We're on multiple platforms streaming live. And it's all about your questions on the Bible. If you have questions about the Bible, questions about Christianity, what does God say about this, that, and the other, maybe something you're going through in your own life, or maybe a specific verse in the Bible that's confused you, something you heard that the Bible says and you want to clarify it, anything along those lines, as long as uh, you have an honest question, and as long as you know that uh, we're finding the answers in the Bible as accurately as we possibly can with God's help, we want to give you an answer straight from the Word of God the Bible. So that's what we're all about here for the next hour as we're live with you. So you can send your questions in through those multiple platforms. I'll be going over those in just a moment and send them on in and I will be on those platforms receiving them and sending them out here to our guests to answer your questions today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for your questions because it does guide our content for today for the most part. And so we're glad that you're out there and, and joining us uh, today. Talking of joining us today, with us is Pastor Scott Richards. Hey. He's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where we're streaming from. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah. Can't wait to dive in and I tackle know. the questions today. We never know where it's going to go. So yeah. thank you for being here, making yourself available. And over here, your your son, your offspring, over here, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Welcome back. All right. Uh, we had an early storm today. Hopefully the shade will stick around for a bit longer. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, last night on the show, that there was some... Awesome thunder going on. I don't know if you could hear it yesterday, but it was kind of rattling the table here. It was pretty cool. Pretty Poignant. exciting. Yeah, we're here in Tucson, Arizona. We get monsoon season, and it's not like where I'm from. Where I'm from in England, we get drizzle that goes on for days and days here. It's like sunny, sunny, and all of a sudden the heavens open, and it all just comes out at once. Kind of exciting. But anyway, we are glad you're joining us wherever you're uh, joining us from all around the world. We do have people join us from all around the world. So as I mentioned, Reason for Hope, it's a live broadcast with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here. Mountain Standard Time here in Tucson, Arizona, as I mentioned. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. So if you're in the Tucson area and you're looking for somewhere to fellowship, you um, maybe you've never been to a church and you would like to see what that's all about, you're more than welcome to come and join us. We're near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway. Our website, again, is calvarychristianfellowship.com. You can get more details there or shoot us uh, a message as well. And to take a look at our website, we have lots of Bible studies and support groups and all kinds of stuff going on. So um, have a click around while you're there. But if you go to that Watch Live tab, that will take you to our live page. Whenever we're live, we stream to that page. So you'll see the video if you go there. Right now, you can sign in with a username and then use the chat function to send your question. I'll be there with you receiving those questions today. That's ccftucson.online.church is the direct link to that page. Or follow the link from calvarychristianfellowship.com. And again, we're we are live there. We do our services live at that page as well. Uh, so you'll see a schedule of upcoming events and the countdown to our next show when we're offline. But obviously we're online right now, broadcasting. We're on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. That stands for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that. Uh, but send your question in. That's another method through the chat uh, box there. Attach the video and I'll be watching there as well. We have an app for your mobile device. Again, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store, and you'll be able to watch us on your uh, phone on a mobile version and send your questions in that way too. And we're on Roku and Apple TV as well. Should you want to watch us on your big screen, add us as a channel in your channel store, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We're on YouTube as well. We're live as we speak there. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel. It's on YouTube. Look for A Reason for Hope, and we are live there. 
that's a great place for archives as well if you go to that live tab whenever we've been live it archives there for you so if you missed the show or you wanted to recap on a question that we covered um, that's a great place for you uh, to go on YouTube and again don't forget to like and subscribe and click on that notification bell if you'd like to get a little notification when we're live um, you get a little prompt and you can join us uh, Pastor Scott here is on Twitter Scott Arthur H is his handle Scott letter R number four letter H did I say that right <laughs> I believe so. I'm kind of. I always want to say number R letter four. I never know. I'm, I'm slightly <laughs> dyslexic, so it, it's a it's a challenge for me. Uh, Scott R four H anyway is his handle. He posts highlights from the show and um, commentary on world events. Uh, he often gives a little update um, when he's here on the show. Things going on in the, the world in the Middle East as, as it uh, relates to uh, biblical prophecy and end times and those kind of things. So it's very interesting. And informative to follow along with him uh, on Twitter and there's just some funnies and uh, shenanigans and tomfoolery and all that kind of stuff too so if you're on Twitter Scott Arthur H you can follow along with him we're on Rumble as well we're not live there but we post some videos some content there as well uh, a reason for hope Bible Q&A on Rumble if you're on that platform and our email address should you want to use that questions for hope at gmail.com that's questions for hope all spelled out at gmail.com you can send your question there I'll be checking those throughout the show as well and if you listen to us on the radio we're glad that you're joining us if you're on your drive time be careful out there with the storms and the wind and all kinds of things going on uh, and keep in mind that you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded we're not live with you on the radio but again our email address questionsforhope at gmail.com you can send us your question there and we'll get to it on our next show and consider joining us on one of those other live platform so once again send your question in um any honest question that you have again as long as you know the bible is the source of the answers on this show that's what we aim to do so send them in get them in early we do uh, sometimes run out of time so we'd appreciate your questions in early and we can pass about the time for those with all that being said let's pause to pray absolutely today pastor scott would you like to pray for us i would that would be fantastic Let me not stand in your way yeah lord thanks so much that we can welcome your presence here in this world where so many crazy things are going on we pray that uh, your word would provide us clarity it would provide us certainty it would provide us the ability to be able not to be in reaction to all of the things that can uh, rob us of our peace but allow us to respond through the power of your spirit and make a difference in this world we pray that this broadcast in some small way would bring your light into the darkness of this present age and lord we pray that your truth spoken in love would minister to the hearts of many many people that are uh, gathering all over the world to be a part of uh, this fellowship that we have we pray that your word uh, would again be that lamp unto our feet and light unto our path and we pray that you would give us the ability uh, to be able to share your truth your whole truth and nothing but your truth as you give us the grace to do so we thank you for this in jesus name amen amen thank you thank you for that um, anything to update us on well, what's going on? There's a lot of uh, uh, dusty up kind of affairs going on here. We've uh, been telling you a little bit about uh, how uh, there are reports of uh, back channel negotiations as far as Saudi Arabia joining the Abraham Accords, including uh, the speculation that the uh, control of the Temple Mount would be handed over uh, to uh, the Saudis and no longer be in uh, control of the Jordanians. Well, uh, some uh, other uh, interesting, uh, as I say, dust up kind of uh, events are going on here related to that. 
And uh, once again, we want to be as upfront as we can about this. We don't know if this is just smoke uh, or if it's, uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. But uh, interesting headline in the Jerusalem Post uh, said, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, is prepared to quit in return for the Sa- Israeli-Saudi peace deal, according to a report. Uh, according to a newspaper uh, published in uh, a Haredi-affiliated uh, uh, publication. Now, by the Haredi, what I mean is the ultra-ultra-Orthodox uh, in Israel. Uh, part of Benjamin Netanyahu's ruling coalition includes uh, having a Haredi-based coalition as part of uh, the, uh, the, the group that uh, allows him to be able to maintain the 61 votes that he needs to continue to be prime minister. Uh, and uh, the head of uh, this uh, Haredi-oriented party uh, is uh, an individual that has uh, created some waves and some headlines, uh, a fellow by the name of uh, uh, Ben Giver, who is the security minister in Israel, uh, has, uh, you know, this is kind of where this is coming from. And so uh, according to this, uh, this article, uh, they said that Netanyahu had resigned to the fact that his political career is nearing an end. Uh, and uh, we, they went on to say that in, in accordance with White House officials, uh, that Netanyahu would receive the long-awaited Saudi normalization deal and plea bargain in his criminal trials for his resignation with the understanding that he does not have the capacity to manage the country in Israel's current political state. Uh, the prime minister is reportedly committed to making any deal with the Saudis possible, even at the price of toppling his own government. Well, uh, definitely eye-brow-arching uh, uh, headlines for sure. But uh, again, Benjamin Netanyahu's faction, Likud Party, hit back against that report, saying that the report in the ultra-Orthodox newspaper is nothing but a far-fetched fabrication. There was never any commitment or request made to change the current makeup of the government in relation to the normalization deal with Saudi Arabia. The government will fulfill its tenure regardless of the prime minister's attempt to widen Israel's circle of peace, the Likud party statement read. So uh, more dust-ups going along that line. And speaking of other dust-ups, our good friend and uh, previous guest on A a Reason for Hope, Joel Rosenberg, uh, was uh, featured in an article in the Jerusalem Post uh, earlier today uh, regarding uh, the idea that Christianity was under fire in Jerusalem. Uh, the uh, king of uh, Jordan, uh, Abdullah ibn uh, al-Hussein, addressed uh, the, uh, the United Nations and said that uh, Christianity in the old city is under fire. The king warned of the perils of undermining Jerusalem's historical and legal status. He argued that they would stoke global tensions and divide and deepen the divides uh, among the major world religions. He said Christianity is vital to the past and present of our region and Holy Land. It must remain an integral part of our future. Uh, well, at the time, uh, many raised eyebrows and questioned the necessity of such statement, including Joel Rosenberg. I'm reading from the Jerusalem Post here. Mm-hmm the editor of All Israel News and All Arab News, and the host of the Rosenberg Report on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. However, Rosenberg acknowledged the king's uh, point of view this week and offered a surprising apology. He said, the scriptures teach us that when we make a mistake, we must have the humility to admit when we were wrong, offering an apology to my friend and neighbor, Jordan's King Abdullah. Uh, Rosenberg, an evangelical who lives in Jerusalem, said on his show, 
and told the Jerusalem Post he had a change of heart and admitted that the king's assessment was accurate and deeply concerning. Rosenberg now believes that if violence against Christians escalates, it could attract criticism from Israel's allies and adversaries. He said, if it gets worse and worse, attacks against Christians in Israel will draw criticism from Israel's friends and enemies alike. You do not want Israel to suddenly be in a position where it can not be, where it can be criticized as not being a safe place for Christians. Well, uh, the reason that this has all come up is over the past year, uh, there have been some antagonistic events uh, that have taken place uh, against Christians. Uh, a, uh, in May, Christians celebrating Pentecost near the Western Wall were subjected to verbal and physical assault by a group of Jewish extremists led by Jerusalem Deputy Mayor Aria King. Uh, the following month, religious Jews rioted outside a Christian concert in Jerusalem, and most recently it became public that the Interior Ministry was denying evangelical Christians work and clergy visas uh, needed to operate in the country. Well, once again, about 50% of Israel's tourism does come from the Christian community, according to the Tourism Ministry. Uh, Rosenberg said, Christians worldwide want to come to the Holy Land, but they are often afraid because of the security situation. They're always a little anxious. You don't want them to think that Christians are especially being targeted. Uh, this uh, resulted in a statement from the tourism minister, Haim Katz, who said, I strongly condemn any harm to tourists or disrespect toward Christian symbols. This despicable phenomena contradicts the values of Judaism with its fundamental principle of being love your neighbor as yourself. We will work together to ensure our guests the best possible tourist experience. Now, this dovetails with an, an encounter that I had uh, with the uh, tourism minister himself in Israel. Uh, when we were visiting uh, the uh, uh, Pool of Siloam uh, on uh, our trip, uh, a number of uh, Palestinian youths from the Arab neighborhood across the street hurled a bunch of concrete uh, chunks over the wall. One of them struck me in the head and knocked me down. Um, the IDF came and kind of tended to my wounds and so forth. And uh, on uh, my Twitter feed, I proudly proclaimed that I've literally been stoned in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was James really interesting. Uh, a couple of, uh, 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 a couple nights later, uh, we were having dinner and this very official looking gentleman with a couple of security guards came in and introduced to me him, to himself as the tourism minister. And he wanted to assure me uh, that they were aware of what happened at the Pool of Siloam, oh, wow. that they had uh, taken steps to uh, find out who was responsible for this and that they were going to uh, make further steps to see that something like this didn't happen again. So when Sean and I uh, visited uh, Israel again, we went back to the Pool of Siloam and uh, they had constructed uh, a uh, canvas, uh, sort of a canopy uh, that would cover the area oh, nice. uh, where I'd gotten hit. I saw there were oh. a few rocks on top of it that uh, I guess some had tried to uh, drill over there. Hmm. But uh, I felt like, man, I really made a contribution yeah. to Israeli, Israeli tourism. Inspired there. progress. So uh, one of the things that, uh, that needs to happen is, is that uh, you know, the ultra-Orthodox uh, and uh, are extremely sensitive to the idea that there could be missionary work happening uh, in Israel, that there could be those who were sharing uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ in Israel, which they would just consider a complete and total affront. And uh, these uh, responses uh, to uh, Christians being there uh, have become uh, more and more brusque, I would say more and more uh, uh, 
uh, overt over time. And uh, again, uh, this is uh, creating a problem for uh, the Jewish government. Uh, you know, once again, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has uh, said uh, openly that he is going to take strong steps to make sure that these things uh, do not happen again and that uh, Christians, especially evangelical Christians and uh, Orthodox Christians, by the way, whose uh, demonstration uh, or whose uh, gathering uh, at Mount Tabor was uh, first approved and then at the last minute denied when they had over uh, 1,500 people that were going to be here for that, that had traveled uh, for this sort of thing. The Minister of the Ministry of Tourism just yanked uh, their permit to be there, and it was a big, big mess. So it looks like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is going to have to step in. Uh, it's very interesting that our good friend Joel Rosenberg is uh, now uh, being asked his opinion on such things by uh, such uh, secular uh, uh, channels as the Jerusalem Post. But it certainly is an interesting issue that is going on there, and we're going to be going back to Israel in 2025, and I will tell you that I have uh, no qualms whatsoever uh, about going back there. I think, Sean, you'd agree with me that uh, neither of us felt the least bit threatened uh, during that particular time, aside from getting head, hit in the head with a rock. <laughs> yes. yeah. We, we <laughs> knew what we were signing up for, but yeah. no, it was a very pleasant experience. Again, for those of you who are interested, just as far as the environment is concerned, if you live in the United States and you're familiar with the climate of California, it literally looks and feels just like that. The only difference is the history in our country is around maybe two, three hundred years. Uh, if you run into some, you know, Indian ruins, you might get into the 500s. There, it's thousands of years of right. history, and all of which are relevant to not only our relationship with God, but some very, very pressing issues still in the modern day. So, yeah, if you have the chance to go to Israel while you still can, I highly recommend it. But note as well that it is we're desert rats here, so we know to always hydrate, but that's a must as well. A lot of walking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Tends to a lot of walking on those, those tours. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Fascinating stuff. Keep praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, very interesting developments, especially uh, regarding the Abraham Accords. So we'll yeah. keep you posted. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we've got some questions coming in. Thanks for that. Once again, you can send your questions in uh, on the Bible, on the whatever platform you join us on, and we will try and get to those on our show today. The first question that came in was from uh, Joe Betha. What is the power of the dog in Psalm 22? Psalm 22, the power of the dog. It says about dogs surrounding me. And yeah, well, dogs uh, are, were a byword in uh, Hebrew parlance for Gentiles. Um, oh. Those who were not Jews were referred to as dogs, and as you would probably imagine, it's not a complimentary term, is it? No. No, and again, you think, oh, puppies, domesticated animals. Yeah. No, even in the Middle East today, in Africa too as well, wild dogs are very dangerous. Yeah, and so that, that is, uh, that's the image that is being portrayed there. And it, again, it's very significant prophetically in Psalm 22 because Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene, uh, among other things, describes in... Uh, dare I use the term excruciating, because that's where the term yeah. came from, excruciating detail, uh, what an individual firsthand would go through in the process of crucifixion. It's a Psalm of David. David suffered in various ways within his life, but he never suffered crucifixion. But uh, Psalm 22 describes his hands and his feet being pierced. Uh, he describes uh, each, uh, his bones being out of joint. 
Uh, he describes uh, a uh, mob of Gentiles, strong bulls of Bashan, they're also referred to mm-hmm. as, uh, surrounding him, uh, dividing his garments uh, among them and throwing dice for them in this process. Mm-hmm. All of these things never happened to King David, but they certainly did happen uh, to Jesus. Yeah. And it is probably one of the most uh, vivid uh, portraits of what uh, the suffering of Christ was from his point of view, firsthand, mm-hmm. first person. Mm-hmm. that you'll find in the entire Bible, right up there with Isaiah 53, mm-hmm. or even the gospel accounts of Jesus' sufferings, which obviously were looking at Jesus, a person looking at his suffering. Right. But Isaiah 53 uh, will give you uh, God the Father's point of view on the sufferings of Jesus. Uh, Psalm 22 will give you Jesus' experience, personally, mm-hmm. of what it was for him, like for him to suffer for our sins. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks, that really sheds a light on that. Uh, Jabetha, thank you for that question and for being part of the show. We have a question from Yari on Proverbs 3.9. His question is, how how does one honor the Lord with their wealth? Um, Psalm 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So well, you just have to finish we... the verse to know the answer to that. It mentions a Jewish ceremony, the Feast of First Fruits, where at the opening days of harvest, every Hebrew citizen was required to bring essentially the first good and best crops to the Lord as a grain offering. They would eat it as a cake, literally, and then just be thankful for what the Lord has provided. In using that as a trend going forward, Lord, you provided this for us, our gift of gratitude to you and bringing this to you and eating it before you will be in expectation of you continuing to bless us throughout the year. And the proverb even goes on to basically belabor the same point. It says, so your barns, notice the result, will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So this is specifically addressing the Jewish people and their covenant with God that in this land, overflowing with milk and honey, they would have grain, they would have wine, they would have the sort of things that an agrarian, a farmer-based society would hope to get more of as the year progresses. But when it comes to your wealth, your possessions, your substance, the book of Proverbs alone has great answers to this even on its own, not just within its verse, but within, say, for example, a few chapters ahead. Uh, In Proverbs 11 and verse 1, Solomon speaking makes an interesting contrast between how we handle our finances. He says, dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight his delight. So notice how you can literally delight the Lord in this passage. You have the lesser and the greater, all contrasted between how God perceives it. Mm. Honoring the Lord in your possessions, right? Well, scales, not like lizard scales or something like that, literally a measurement between two tools, (laughs) is how they determined whether something was enough money. They'd have a certain measure of weight to show this how how much silver, this is how much gold. You need to purchase these things when the scales would balance out. That was the price. Now, a dishonest person would kind of, you know, have special weights that looked or were labeled differently than they actually were, so you had to pay a little more. Uh, The joke about the barber whose thumb weighed a pound and a half, you know, that whole deal. Mm -hmm. The idea of being dishonest in your financial dealings dishonors him. So then what would honor him? He says, just weights, literally just like justice, balanced, fair scales are his delight. Mm -hmm. So not cheating, 
<laughs> whether it's in your taxes, whether it's in your finances, not skimming off the top with people, that's a way you can honor God with your wealth. You don't have to give a cent of it to the church. It's all speaking of your character, mm. of how you handle it in representing him. That honors him. Uh, we can go into, again, more in the same chapter. This one's actually interesting because it doesn't mention a right or wrong. It actually notes a distinction between the sexes and how we, uh, I guess, accumulate things. This is the same chapter, Proverbs 11 and verse 16, where it says, A gracious woman retains honor, but ruthless men retain riches. Now, you might think that this is a little, you know, Andrew Tatey. It's like, oh, the, yep. the evil, you know, one gender above the other and stuff. But both, believe it or not, are being shown in a positive light. Because at the end of someone's life, what are people looking for in women? Not necessarily their looks, but their graciousness, their inner beauty, their character. Right. Whereas when a guy, you know, grandpa comes around, what's the first thing the grandkids want to do? They want to go to the toy store. They, they, they want money, they, especially with the in-laws too, for other reasons. But how is honor maintained? It's when a hardworking, literally a ruthless man, not cruel, but unstoppable, essentially, is going to retain his status, his wealth. That's seen in the same way. This is a couplet as a woman would be if she has a gracious personality. And these are the sort of things that Solomon's culture, Hebrew culture in general, would emphasize men and women to build up for towards the end of their lives. Is women, you can have a lot of kids around you, make sure that you're pleasant to be around because that's all you'll have. Men, they're still gonna want something from you, so make sure you have something to give. But notice again, this instruction on how we handle our finances, honesty, in usefulness and practicality. These are the sort of things that the Bible speaks of. Now, you, Yari, we know you come from a uh, prosperity gospel, you know, Pentecostal background where they would, no right way to put it, manipulate and twist the scriptures in order to coerce you into giving money. It's a blight on the church that even one person, let alone an entire category of people who claim to be Christians, would try to do such a thing. But when it comes to our perspective on giving to God, what was specifically being mentioned in Proverbs 3.9, what does the New Testament say about our attitude towards giving and finances and everything in between? Well, our, our attitude's everything, uh, as far as God is concerned. Uh, you know, uh, when, uh, you know, I think about the, uh, the passage in uh, the book of uh, Mark chapter 14, where the widow came uh, into the temple treasury and you know the Jesus was hanging out there and the disciples saw you know people putting in these large sums uh, of money and it was it was quite a display if you will uh, because uh, the way they would gather money in the temple treasury is they had these uh, brass sort of receptacles on the top it looked like uh, the business end of a tuba and uh, you would take... Uh, it's like those the, little the, funnel things at the mall when the yeah. coin spins around. Yeah, you would take like your shekels, which were, you know, again, I love those uh, silver coins and so on, and you would dump them into this thing. It would make this big din and racket, and everybody mm. would turn around, you know, and look if someone really put in a bunch. Well, we're told that this widow came and uh, put in, uh, the, the scripture says, two leptons. Uh, literally, it means two leaves of copper, the smallest possible denomination that mm. you could have at that particular time so you know to contrast this you've got jp got rocks coming in and uh dumping this huge wheelbarrow yeah. full of shekels and everybody's like whoa and then you got this other woman coming in and going tink tink mm. that was about it 
And, you know, the, you know, you could probably imagine the disciples thinking, well, you know, why even bother? You know, if that's a, but Jesus said, look, uh, this woman's really given more than anyone else because mm-hmm. they all gave out of their excess. She gave everything that she had, wow. even what she had to live on to God. Yeah. You know, and so it's not what you give, what yeah. Jesus was emphasizing. It's, it's why you're giving. It's the heart behind it. And the heart behind giving, really a beautiful passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6 says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Sometimes we can be so reactive to, you know, as you mentioned, Sean, scammers and manipulative people, especially mm-hmm. uh, in Christian circles, that we, ah, you know, uh, we, we don't even really want to talk about giving at all mm-hmm. uh, or be involved with giving at all. Oh, well, you know, the Lord knows my heart and it's all his anyway. Well, no, the Lord wants you to give. And uh, if you give, sparingly you're going to reap sparingly if you sow bountifully you'll reap bountifully so how can you uh sow bountifully and be blessed in your giving well the very next line says let each one give as he purposes in his heart our giving should be first of all intelligent it should be a purposing in our heart and and what this comes down to is budgeting uh, you know, we take a look at our finances. Uh, do we run our finances or do our finances run us? Uh, you'd be amazed how many people I talk to uh, that are in uh, difficult financial straits that have no budget. They have no idea what their expenses are every month. They have no idea what their income is every month. They have no plan for savings and they have no plan for giving. And so, you know, again, it's the old, uh, if you fail to plan, plan to fail. Uh, people end up living paycheck to paycheck because they don't give purposefully. They don't give as they purpose in their hearts. They have no purpose behind their finances. You know, and so the, you know, one of the first steps you can do uh, to give in a godly way is to realize, well, wait a minute, this isn't my money, it's God's money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All I have and am comes from him. So I, I want to be a good steward of that. I, I want to know what I've got coming in, what I've got going out. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that we need to live a quiet life. We need to pay our debts. We need to, to be a, a person with that kind of integrity. So we give as we purpose in our heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. I love this because, you know, I, I call this the roll your eye test. Uh, if you're ever in a Christian setting and someone you know, talks about giving, or there's an opportunity to give, or you see someone who's in a financial need, and and the first thing you do is roll your eyes, like, oh boy, here we go again. I've got some advice for you I bet you never thought you'd hear from a Christian organization. Don't give. God doesn't need your money. He's not broke. He's not a little short this month. If it's a big deal for you to give, don't give. Imagine if uh, someone came up to you and said, you know, um, the Lord put on my heart to give you this gift here, but, oh, you know, because I'm giving you this gift, I'm not going to be able to go to the ball game this weekend, and, you know, I'm giving this to you, and really, you know, I could spend it on some other things that I really wanted, but, you know, God kind of told me to do it, so here you go. Well, if someone gave to you like that, uh, if someone gave to me like that, I'd say, keep your gift. Uh, God doesn't want us to give grudgingly or of necessity. And I think that's an important one because there's some people that will, will say, well, you know, you know, the reason you're broke, the reason that things aren't going well for you is because you're not giving to our ministry. And if you give to our ministry, then boy, then God's going, you know, and, and that's giving from necessity. 
you know, that that's uh, saying, okay, uh, gosh, I thought he was God the Father. He's acting more like the Godfather. He wants his, uh, you know, to uh, wet his beak, if you will. And I got I to gotta give to him or he's going to come in and say, oh, nice little home you got there. Shame if something happened to it. No, that's not why we give. We give how? God loves a cheerful giver. The word there in the original language, the word hilarious, literally means hilarious. It means that when you give, you just got a smile on your face. And it's just the greatest thing in the world if you're doing it right, if you're doing it as God leads. So I think if we have that attitude, and remember, it wasn't what the widow put in to the offering that mattered. It was the heart behind it that Jesus commended. What she did physically didn't impress anybody. No. But where she was at spiritually, you know, even impressed the Lord. I think it's really interesting. Another point in all that, Jesus was watching when people give. Jesus watches when we give. Right. Jesus watches our finances. He's concerned about that. Why? Because where your money is, what? There your heart will be yeah. also. Yeah. So yeah. Very good. Big deal. It is, yeah. And so to clarify, you, you mentioned um, uh, prosperity gospel, which in a nutshell is that God's will is for us all to be rich and, and have much and and well and um, that is isn't the case we believe but at the same time it's not wrong to have wealth is that right um, does, does God call us all to be poor or I mean where, where does the prosperity gospel get it wrong um, where should I start when it comes to the assumption the main error of the prosperity gospel is first of all that they exclusively are the arbiters of where and how God is designated to bless you. Now, people who go the vow of poverty route usually look at the rich young ruler and Jesus literally commanding him that if he is to be perfect, he is to give to the poor, have treasure in heaven, and then follow me. Now, he didn't say that to any of the apostles, any of his disciples, and how he commissioned individuals even in dissuading them he never brought up their money there were two instances where someone said lord let me follow you and jesus says birds have nests and foxes have dens but the son of man has no place to lay his head right. he didn't mention money he described himself in a state of poverty so that's an issue if you're going to infer that guy had to become poor jesus was just saying i'm poor or at least homeless. He was a couch surfer. But if you're also going to note the next passage, does he bring up money then? Well, the man says, nothing actually. Jesus approached him and says, you come follow me. He doesn't give him any pretext. He just says, follow me. And then what does the guy say? Let me first go and bury my father, then I'll follow you. Jesus' reply was, let the dead bury their dead, you follow me. Now, what's interesting about this is that secular groups will try to say, oh, this man was clearly on his way to his father's funeral, but Jesus interrupted his life and forced him to follow him. No, there was a cultural saying that when I get my inheritance, when my dad dies, after I bury my father, get my finances in order, then I can follow you. Now, that may have something to do with finances, but oddly enough, the atheists who try to twist that passage can't find it in the text itself. So why the rich young ruler? Because that was his issue. His ownership, possessive issue. He had great possessions. And that was what was keeping him from wanting a relationship with God from the heart. So if 
we're put in a position where either someone goes the radical route and saying the only reason you should come to God is for the sake of your own gain, then God's an ATM machine. You don't want a relationship with him. That's the prosperity gospel route. It reduces God to Santa Claus. But if on the other hand we go the opposite route and twist scripture, notice the common theme here, to say the only way I can follow God is to match my personality and calling to follow Jesus exactly like the rich young ruler, Mm. which is fallacious. He's dealing with people on an individual basis. That specific example was what? Meant to be an object lesson for the apostles who said what? We've forsaken all and followed you. That's literally how the conversation continued. And then Jesus says what? You're gonna get reward in heaven. Don't worry about that. But what's the point? You're following me, not that you gave up everything. And it's not as if those two things are the same, because note, there are people who didn't give up anything and followed Jesus. There are people like Zacchaeus who gave up a lot, but not at the instruction of Jesus, the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their own heart. What we're talking about is, going back to Proverbs 3, 9, honoring God, reflecting him, giving weight to him showing he's worth more than these things. So if we're asking, going back to the emphasis of the question, the vow of poverty route or the uh, use God for riches route, both are a mistake because they reduce God to a terms and conditions with either a benefit or a cost. Mm -hmm. It's not about that. It's about a relationship. What you do with those things may be reflective later on, but it's no more... I guess, a bizarre exchange of goods than a marriage proposal is a financial decision. It will involve finances down the road. You both would say amen, but it's not as if, or at least I hope not, that's why prenuptial agreements are a huge red flag. When you start dating someone, they say, so how are the finances going to be divided here? That's creepy. So note that point. The emphasis of our relationship with God is just that. It's not pay this much for entry, pay this much for a subscription, and you get benefits later on, we promise, wink, wink, mm-hmm. it's him. If he is your treasure, an exceedingly great reward, like he said in Genesis 15, 1 to Abram, that's the point. Yeah. Whatever else you get on top of that, you can either be grateful for or be thankful to the fact that, like uh, Agur said in Proverbs 30, I don't have so many riches that my character ends up making me forget you. Right. Uh, give me neither poverty nor riches, exactly. that I would steal and dishonor your name, notice that word again, or that I would live in luxury and yeah. forget you. Yeah. So that's the point, is yeah. knowing he's the focus, he's the goal. What you have in the meantime, again, could be an account of your foolishness, but when we're noting how we handle finances, it's not zero or infinity. It's what you have right, and right. being faithful with that. Yeah, yeah. very good. Well, if that you. answers the actual question yeah. being asked. Yeah, I'm okay. sure it does. So it was a great discussion. Thank you, Yari, for sparking that discussion. It's definitely a great thing to talk about. Um, appreciate you. A uh, question from uh, Colons. Where did all the languages come from? Uh, was the original language like a grunt kind of how we start as babies or cavemen? Um, yeah, where did all the language, different languages, where did they come from is the question. Thank Genesis that. 11, the Tower of Babel. Yeah. When it comes to all the different languages, there was an incident where those who followed God on the earth, and there were even distinctions then, even though Noah was still alive, believe it or not, that they wanted to either obey God's command to fill the earth, to 
spread out, to diversify. And there were those who gathered together to try to build to try to build, excuse me, a tower in the heavens. Now, there's implications for all that that aren't relevant to the conversation, but just noting it was where the concept of idolatry began. Let, let's just stick with that. Now, it begins in the chapter, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. So not just the expression, but the understanding that these expressions meant something. They weren't making it up as they went along. They had something that right. allowed them to communicate with each other. And the chapter somewhat ends, it goes on. But the event concludes with the Lord confusing the languages and spreading them out through that. Now you read the previous chapter and how the nations were dispersed Chapter 10 and verse 32 notes that the people in these locations were divided up according to their languages. So the people that obeyed the Lord were surprised and found out they were all speaking the same language and understood each other. But the people who were rebelling against the Lord, gathering in what eventually became Babylon, the Tower of Babel was in that area, we have what? confusion in right. languages. So right. there, there's kind of an irony here. But if we are going to say, oh, well, that was like, you know, later on in development. How do you know, you know, the 200 years after Noah's flood, how do you know that Noah wasn't, uh, you know, some primitive brute with the big eyebrows and stuff? Well, let's go all the way back to the, uh, the, the start of things in Genesis chapter 3, where we have the first woman being spoken to. Right. Notice there's meaning and communication happening here. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So not only is God communicating with her, not only is she communicating with Adam, because that's where she would have heard this from, the Lord instructed Adam, Genesis 2 said, not to eat of the tree of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil. So there was not only meaning, there was association, there was identification as well, and theology, believe it or not. Has God indeed said? Right. So Eve's not some, you know, club-bashing brute getting pulled by the hair into the cave or whatever. Likewise, in the previous chapter, what does Adam do? He calls animals, not just according to appearance, but according to their kind. He identifies distinctions and gives meaning to them. He's not introducing language, but he's certainly founding terms. So as this language is being as this language is being practiced, notice language being practiced. He's using right. that language to identify these animals. We're getting this repeat theme of something already being in place that was eventually diversified at the time of Noah's flood and after. So understand that when we read into the scripture. Well, these smart people who aren't historians but like to pretend to be have this understanding that since everything develops from the simple to the complex, already a false assumption, Darwin's black box has been thoroughly debunked in the field of microbiology, that's where that comes from, then that has to be true for language as well. False assumption is going to lead to a false conclusion. Yes, languages have developed now, as a result of, say, for example, Romance languages and root languages, right. but it's false and not verifiable to assume that because Latin eventually became French and Gaelic and all these other different things, that that somehow implies that something produced Latin, and that something produced Greek, and that something produced you know, Aramaic or whatever. When we're talking about development of languages, we can observe that today. When we go back far enough and we ask the question, what was the language of Eden? The answer is that we don't know. 
But given the historical accounts we have of how life worked back then, we know they not only had a language, but a sophisticated enough language to at least be able to communicate distinction of animals, distinctions between each other, an understanding of God, and, albeit, the ability to coordinate construction projects, if yeah. we're just going to go off of what we're told. Yeah, not to mention the fact that they could communicate with God. Yeah. How interesting yeah. that when God created man, he didn't create him a fertilized egg, right? Yeah. I mean, Adam was fully grown and able to speak and relate with God and with Eve. He was even able from the get-go to compose poetry. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is his poetry. is the first love song that we see uh, that is created there. So if, in fact, uh, as the Bible states, we're made in God's image and likeness, it would seem rather strange that God, who in the beginning said, let there be light, and there was light, that God spoke the world into existence, that Jesus himself is referred to in the Gospel of John as the Word, it would seem rather strange if God created man in his image and likeness, but we kind of had to figure out language all by ourselves. Right. It, it, it just seems like God hotwired it uh, into who we are as human beings. Yeah. So going in, in a highly developed and sophisticated form, as you mentioned, so sophisticated that uh, Adam, before the creation of Eve, was involved with uh, biology and taxonomy, uh, not only cre uh, naming animals, but naming them in a significant way. Yeah. So, And then let's just take a step back and pretend that we're only functioning with what we know. Well, even the atheist model of history doesn't fit this conclusion, because if you go to the quote-unquote caveman, who's usually pointed out as the uh, example of the brutish subhuman that, of course, we eventually descended from, the Neanderthal, right? Well, here's the problem. Not only did Neanderthals have technology that we aren't even able to replicate today. Look up Neanderthal glue sometime if you want to be impressed. I have trouble with my little, you know, plastic and metal and resin glue stuff, getting my miniatures to stick together. They have stuff that still works even today. Or even the artistry of the Luskow Caves and so forth. Yeah, yeah, the ink that was able to be preserved for so long. But what's also interesting is that Neanderthals can have their genetics traced within us, which means what? They can interbreed with humans. Meaning what? They're Part also of the humans. Part of the species. So it doesn't. Definition. Yeah. So it doesn't even fit their models, which, by the way, Christians gave to them. Look up the founder of modern genetics, Christian. The point being made is that, though, um, if we say, "Oh, well, things start simple and then they become complex over time," actually, nature works the opposite way. But law of atrophy aside. When we're talking about this assumption, Darwin's black box, it was under a assumption of ignorance that he thought that the single cell, right, was something very simple, something very base, and that eventually it produced and mutated into what we see today. We look at eukaryotic organisms and find out they ain't simple. And that's why he called it a black box, because he didn't know what was going on inside. We know maybe a fraction of what's going on and literally have founded fields of engineering based off of the little things that those little squigglies and critters can do in ways that we can't even see without technology to aid us. So note that point. A lot of false assumptions. Don't let the macro abiogenesis through means of natural selection narrative, which is 
complete hogwash set the tone for how you handle scripture or how you handle history but i repeat myself yeah very good well, thank you for that question hope that that helps you along with that so a question from thomas thomas let me know if this kind of sums up your question if it's helpful to you his question is uh where is the line i've kind of reworded it where is the line between thinking through all the what ifs and possible scenarios uh, to be prepared and simply trusting God. So I guess it's kind of a question to all those overthinkers out there. So should we think through every scenario to be prepared or should we trust God? And where's the line between those things? Well, I'd say the line is fear. Um, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. So, you know, when I look at the future, is it like a lack of faith that causes me to say, all right, um, you know, uh, I may have a need for insurance in the future. Should I devote part of my budget to having life insurance so that my loved ones are taken care of in case something happens to me? Mm -hmm. Well, I can look at that decision in one of two ways. I can look at it out of fear and go, oh my gosh, I'm gonna drop over any minute. I better have life insurance. And then I can make a rash decision about that. Or I can say, well, no, the Bible tells us that the one who doesn't take care of his own family is worse than an infidel and it's denied the faith. So I don't wanna do that. Uh, I wanna walk in love, especially towards my family, make sure they're well taken care of. And so if I'm motivated along that line, I don't look, say, at a decision, for instance, regarding a contingency in the future, like life insurance, as uh, something that is based on fear, but rather is based upon power, love, and a sound mind. Okay, the power to maintain this perspective comes from being filled with God's Holy Spirit. Because yeah. if we're not filled with the Spirit, we will fall back on our default position uh, when in fear or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. Mm -hmm. That's basically what we as human beings do. Yeah. Uh, but if we have the power of God, the Holy Spirit living through us, causing his word to uh, come alive to us, uh, we have love as our motivation to love others as God has loved us. And a sound mind, the word is logikos there. Uh, the sound mind decision and all of that is, well, the statistics on death are most impressive. One out of one people die. So logically, if I wanna make sure that everything's gonna be well for my family, I'm probably gonna wanna make this financial decision. I don't do that out of fear. Right. I do that out of practicality. I do it out of a passion and desire to see my family well taken care of, even if it doesn't benefit me directly. And, uh, and also, I do it uh, in the, the power of God's Spirit leading me into truth in His Word. Mm. Very good. So that, that, that's where you cross the line. Yeah. yeah. I like draw the line between the, like you said it, should I versus what if. The should I deals with what you actually can control. The what if is dealing with things that either haven't happened, right. hadn't happened, or won't happen, but you're just wasting time fueling fear regardless. So when you ask the should I's, let's go back to the financial question. Should I invest in this? Well, I could say this is, notice the language there, this is sound, this is growing, this is coming from honest sources, right? What if it crashes? What if it's not as honest as it seems? What if it's all a conspiracy by those awful Jews to the, you know, you get the point? It's going into or beyond the realm of actual reality. And it's even worse when we do this with history. You know, what if uh, God made yeah. us uh, lizards instead of uh, mammals, right? I don't care. <laughs> Let's deal with what we can actually not only work with, but what data is actually on the table. Yeah. Yeah. There's a part of, 
grief that can be difficult about that. I think of people that made just a split decision and it changed their life, you know, an accident or something like that where they lost a hand or whatever it is, we can get stuck in that, man, if, I, if I'd only left later, if I'd only, if I'd only, and that kind of what if, and you can get stuck there. I guess there's that aspect to it as well where you just, you really have to let that go. Well, and you again, cannot power, add love, and a sound mind. Yeah. Okay, logically, you've got to stop yourself and go, well, what's done is done. It happened, yeah. I, I can't go back and I, can, I can't change that. However, I can make a decision in my life to trust and walk with God today in light of these circumstances. Yeah. How many of you can add one cubit to his stature by worrying? Right. Yeah. 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 yeah we do, don't we? Yeah. We do a great job. Chew you up and spit you out. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. right. So, Good. but we got a choice. Yes, we do. Well, Thomas, hope that helps you out. Thank you for that that question. Let us know if that's kind of what you were thinking there. Um, question from Herbie. Um, this is for you, Scott. He's calling you out by name. Not really. I'm I'm making it more dramatic than it is. Uh, Herbie says, Scott, I heard. Say when. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yes, that's right. By the dumpsters. Yeah, after. Yeah. Um, I heard that in your opinion, mani- marriage is a ministry. Can you explain, please? Marriage is a ministry. Well, uh, the, the explain yourself. The wonderful thing is, it's not my opinion. It's what the Bible says. No. Uh, if you oh, want to understand you how God <laughs> defines marriage. Uh, and, you know, again, this is, uh, you know, our basis for this program and our basis for understanding uh, how to live. You know, the Bible has been called God's basic instructions before leaving earth. It would seem that if one of the first and great blessings that God gave to man in the Garden of Eden was uh, the first marriage. God presided over it. He was the father of every bride, the father of every groom. Uh, it says what God has joined together, let not man separate. So, you know, again, at its fundamental uh, marriage is intended to be a, a ministry. Yeah. In the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, chapter uh, four, we are told that uh, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Mm. And uh, that's a beautiful picture of the fact that uh, two are better than one. They have a good return for their labor. The, thir- the three strands is the idea that in every marriage you have one strand is the man, one strand is the woman, and then the other strand is the presence of God that causes the relationship to be able to function. So what does that, that ministry look like practically? How are we to carry it out? God is the one who created marriage. God is the one who empowers marriage, but he also gives us guidelines. Uh, Ephesians chapter five and verse 22 says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands in everything. Okay, what is a wife's responsibility within marriage? Well, in the marriage ceremony that that I do, one of the things that I will ask is if uh, the woman is willing to submit herself to the man's spiritual leadership within Mm -hmm. the family. So if the world wants to find out how God's people lovingly submit to Jesus' spiritual Mm -hmm. leadership, they should be able to find out by observing uh, the, uh, the submission to the man's spiritual leadership within the home. So, and that would imply spiritual leadership is going on here. Right. Yeah, maybe not hopefully. good, maybe, yeah. uh, but, but hopefully. Yeah. In a healthy marriage, that's what it's all about. So that's what the wife is to do, to be a demonstration of how we as God's people relate to Jesus. The man is also given an instruction here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that they should, should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Uh, so the husband's responsibility is similar. The world wants to find out how much Jesus sacrificially loves his people. Mm-hmm. They should be able to find out by observing how the husband sacrificially loves his wife. Mm. And so these are the two basic functions of marriage. And really, well, what about parenting? Well, you know, I think it was James Dobson who once said, the most loving thing that a man can ever do for his children is to love his wife. Mm. Because if the children see that, uh, if they grow up in that environment, granted, none of us are perfect. We all have our ups and our downs. But if they see that happening, then there's going to be stability. There is going to be a, a, uh, an imprinting, a modeling, if you will, that they can take forward in terms of how they're going to conduct their relationships. Yeah. So, you know, really powerful discipling ministry. It's a modeling ministry. It's an evangelistic ministry mm-hmm. in that it reveals to the world the, the very love of God and how the relationship with God is all about. It is something that God created. It is something that God empowers. And without the presence of the Lord, good luck. Uh, it is something that is definitely in over our heads. People will say in premarital counseling, well, that's impossible. How can I, how can I love my wife like Jesus did? Here's how you do it. Let Jesus love her through you. You don't have the love she needs. Jesus does. How can I submit to this guy's spiritual leadership when I want to go? Well, you know, again, the, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So, you know, again, beautiful picture. Yeah. Uh, you know, the church should be a living picture of Jesus and his people relating. So each marriage should be the same. So that's yeah. why we call marriage yeah. a ministry. Great. Well, thank you, Herbie. Thanks for asking that that question. And I, I stole some of that stuff from you without realizing it when I do weddings. And some of that, I didn't know I got it from you. So thank you for that. Well, <laughs> I should have guessed well, that I did. Well, a tribute. Yes. <laughs> that's right. Well, thank you for being part Shameless of the show. Plagiarist. We're out for today. We will be back on Monday, even though it's a, it's a holiday, I understand. So we'll see you then. Have a great weekend. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.